1: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 29.
0: Well, once again, we're going to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, and we always want to remember to do that with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank You that in Your kingdom there are no accidents, no coincidences, that we're all here right now by Your divine appointment. And so we seek Your will in our lives, Father. We pray that You would just increase in us an awareness of what, the extremes You've gone to on our behalf. Give us apprehension that we might magnify and exalt and glorify our coming King, our Redeemer, our Savior. Yeshua, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, we are in the Epistle of the Colossians and we're in the second half of chapter 1. And uh, it, uh, I think, will be a very different experience for all of us. Gnosticism, of course, just by way of refocusing ourselves, contains several characteristics. It was Jewish. Stressing the need for observing the Old Testament laws and ceremonies. That was the Gnostics pushing that idea. It was philosophical, relying uh, uh, on on, uh, some special knowledge or deeper knowledge or gnosis. That's where the Gnostics get their name there. And uh, it it involved, in many forms, it involved the worship of angels as mediators with God. And uh, it was exclusive, stressing special privilege and perfection of those select few that... uh, who belong to their philosophical uh, elite, if you will. And uh, so... But in all its different forms, and there are many different forms, Gnosticism denied the deity of Christ. Thus calling forth one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity found anywhere else in Scripture. So this extremism on their part yielded a blessing for us, and we're about to encounter that as we get into this chapter. And uh, also adding... uh, to Eastern speculations was a form of Jewish legalism. The idea that some rite of circumcision or other things was helpful in spiritual development. Watch out for those things. And also the Old Testament dietary laws uh, were presumably helpful in attaining spiritual perfection. Watch out for these things. They're very, very uh, uh, addictive, very, very alluring. And uh, the whole idea that good and evil can be derived from rules and regulations. There's a place for rules and regulations in in a society in some sense, but don't confuse that with good and evil. It's a a dangerous thing to cross. And uh, so these views uh, undermine the very foundations of the Christian faith. That's really Paul's point here. And it attacked, and this is what really is the keep issue, it attacks the person and work of Jesus Christ. You and I as uh, devoted to the Word of God should have no confusion about the work that's been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ and we need to understand as best we can His person, who He really is. And uh, now to the Gnostics He was just one of the many emanations or eons if you will and not the very Son of God come in the flesh. That's the real point here. The whole term of incarnation uh, means God, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. and. Uh, so these false teachers, of course, claim that God was keeping His distance from us and so on. And so when we trust the Son of God, there is no need for any intermediary between us and Him. And that can be, hes the uh, allusion here is primarily to angels and these so-called emanations, principles, powers and so forth. And of course it also can include members of His family, <coughs> i.e. Um, Mary and what have you. And even uh, in John's second letter of the three epistles is to marry. It's amazing how many people miss that. And this is very quite clear as you study that epistle. But anyway, in his work on the cross, Jesus settled the sin question. That's an astonishing statement, but it's settled. It's done. And we're going to be dealing with that in the next chapter very specifically. And, uh, he, and in so doing, he completely defeated all satanic forces. And, and Paul's going to make a big thing of that. But the thing that's most amazing is, you embrace this summary here, He put an end to the legal demands of the law. The the legal demands of the law are done, they're completed. He did it. That's what Colossians deals with in Chapter 2 and what the Epistle of Romans deals with. He alone is the preeminent one and He's completely sufficient. So the false teachers in Colossae, like false teachers in our own day, rarely deny the importance of Christ. They simply dethrone Him. Many people... In, uh, would seem to uh, exalt Christ as a great teacher, a miracle worker, or they'll even grant and other things, but they take him off the throne. That's the key issue. And none of you that are familiar with the teaching of Colossians will ever be misled by the specious sophistries of the various occultists now being foisted on a credulous public. Okay, so that's by way of warm-up review of the last several sessions. What holds the universe all together, if anything? What really glues it all together? And uh, astronomers and astrophysics are, uh, are uh, continuing to struggle with these questions. And there's new theories with every issue of the technical journals as they struggle with these issues. But it's going to be interesting to discover the Bible has a lot to say about them. I often like to ask the question, how many of you? would take a course in physics if they were using 1950 textbooks. Not many of you. In fact, you'd be uncomfortable if they used 1970, or even 1900, or whatever. And uh, this funny thing about life, it's like a roll of toilet paper, it goes fast near the end, you know. uh, (laughs) But the field of science is changing so rapidly, so quickly. The Bible doesn't have to change because it doesn't need to. And yet you'll find astonishing uh, discoveries about today's universe in the Scripture. And we'll touch on some of those. And of course, the New Testament has some very interesting creation references. John chapter 1, the first three verses is well known to all of you, I'm sure, which deals with Christ's uh, (coughs) pre-existence. But the other reference, there's two key references, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word and so forth, the way He opens His Gospel. The other reference, if you list the key references, there's that one. The other one is, in, is the one we're about to encounter. So in the outline that we've talked about, that we're dealing with, we previously, in the previous session, covered the first 14 verses and now we're shifting into the last 15 verses of chapter 1. And so probably no other section in the New Testament contains a more elevated view than the following one. So. Fasten your seatbelts because here we go, okay? Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Boy, this sentence has a lot of things tucked away in it. The image of the invisible God. See in contrast to the Gnostic and also the Muslim, I might add, who maintains that God can never be known or understood. We have one who has made God known to us. And let me dwell on that for a moment. The Allah of the Quran is the unknowable one. He can do anything, which means He can be capricious. He can't be regarded as trustworthy. The God of Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov, the God of the Old Testament, Delights in making and keeping his promises. The point I'm making is the very presentation of God in the Quran and the Old Testament are opposites. Uh, even if you grant, you know, just prescinding it for for rhetorical reasons, they're opposites. And uh, I won't start down the whole Quran path. It's a warrior code and so forth. But the point is, um, in contrast to the Quran, and in contrast to the Gnostics also. Uh, God is the known one. He's made Himself known. In fact, He's gone to astonishing lengths to make Himself known. He became flesh and dwelt. He actually, not only created the creation, He entered the creation. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John reminds us in the first chapter of his gospel. Now it's because man bears the image of his creator that it was possible For the Son of God to become incarnate as man and in His his humanity to display the glory of the invisible God. That was possible because man was originally made in His image. At least in some sense here. And so, who is the image of the invisible God? The image of God reflects on the Adam-Christ typology. The first Adam-Christ, one of His titles is the last Adam. He he, he accomplishes what Adam uh, blew, if you will. And so it's in which Christ is viewed as the first true man who fulfills God's design and creation. Adam blew it. Okay. Christ stepped in and fulfilled those requirements on our behalf. Boy, is it hard for us, first of all, to understand that, and then it's hard for us to hang on to that. We keep wanting to think of exceptions. And uh, it's interesting. So the image to be in the image of Christ is the goal of all Christians. And there's lots of verses You can dig out of the notes if you want to chase those down there. Now Paul used the word image and the word he used in the Greek means an exact representation in Revelation. That's what the term really means. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews affirms that Jesus Christ is the express image of His person. That's in the third verse of the the, uh, epistle to the Hebrews. And uh, Jesus Himself made this declaration. You remember that in chapter 14. Jesus was able to say, He that hath seen me hath seen whom? the Father. Wow. And uh, we may not fully appreciate all that that means, but I'm reminded, of course, about 1 John 3.2. Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. A photograph is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional person. We're not talking about A three-dimensional representation of a ten-dimensional, we're talking about whatever dimensionality He enjoys, we will also enjoy. Why? Because we will see Him as He is. Wow. In essence, in His essence, God is invisible, but Jesus Christ has revealed Him to us nevertheless, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Now here's a term that confuses a lot of people. He was the firstborn of every creature. What on earth does that mean? Protococcus. It's uh, used five times in the New Testament. The term refers to priority of position. It's a term referring to the priority of position, not origin. We think a firstborn is a term of origin. No, it's a term of position. And uh, the firstborn of a family... Often may be the one that was born first, but often if that guy forfeits, somebody else will step into those shoes and become the firstborn, okay? And uh, the firstborn of creation, that means he was prior to all creation. And, uh, and, uh, and, And he's so designated, by the way, in the letter to Laodicea. This is one of those expressions that's unique to Colossians and Laodicea a title of Christ that's unique to those two letters. Paul uses it in both places, well I should say, Paul uses it here, Jesus uses it of himself in the letter to Laodicea. But it it refers to a a prior, being prior to the thing. And uh, now this was interpreted by the Arians to mean first of a kind, that Christ was the first creature. That's not true. That's one of the errors of the, of the, uh, of the Arians. But that's a piece of history. The word can have this meaning, but such meaning, reading is not consistent with Paul's theme and here he stresses messianic priority and primacy. This is what Paul is doing here. Firstborn, it's positional. He's the heir and the preeminent one. He's not necessarily the one born 1st born give you an example, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born first, but who was, the, who was the firstborn? Isaac, as indicated in Genesis 22, despite the Muslims' attempt to twist that around in their traditions. Esau and Jacob, who was born first? And who is the firstborn? You see, the one that's preeminent. Again, these are examples of reversals here. Reuben and Joseph. Reuben was born first, but he messed around with his father's concubine and forfeited his firstborn position to Joseph, who then takes it, and Joseph gets the double portion for his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, uh, and Manasseh and Ephraim. Even they, they are reversed. When, when uh, Joseph is... Uh, brings his sons to Jacob for blessing. He crosses his hands and upsets the father. You got it backwards. No, he knew what he was doing. That's what God told him to do. And so uh, they're reversed. And of course, the first Adam the last Adam. Who is the firstborn? Christ. Last, but first. Okay. Because if, if he, he's pre-existent. Uh, Micah 5.2. He's the only begotten. That's used five times. He wasn't begotten. He's he's the firstborn, but he's not begotten. That sounds like a contradiction because we don't pay attention to the definition of the words. You follow me? And Isaac's also called that way. Abraham's only begotten son when he's called to be offered in Genesis 22. Take your only son, Isaac. What about Ishmael? He's not the son of the promise. And so, the firstborn is positional. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. God speaking to Moses, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. See, Israel is positionally in that role here. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. That's what God told Moses to say to Pharaoh at the burning bush. Now, Cecil B. DeMille did quite a job with the Ten Commandments. But it has some misleading aspects. It gives you the impression that it was Pharaoh's remark that caused that tenth of the tenth plague to be the firstborn. No, God had predicted that back at the burning bush in, Genesis, in uh, Exodus 4. So, but again, that firstborn is one of position. Okay. And uh, Psalm 89. Boy, that's an incredible psalm, by the way, and, you're, and you want to check off some of the favorite psalms. Don't overlook Psalm 89 for lots of reasons. But starting about verse 20, God says, I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, mine arm shall also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. That's God's commitment to David. It's really astonishing to realize how God committed himself to David. And, uh, but, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also upon the sea, and his right hand in the rivers, and he shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, and my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him, get this, my firstborn. God is making David his firstborn, and uh, higher than the kings of the earth. That's David. You say, well, that's reflected in the son of David, Jesus Christ. Yes, it is. But there's much more going on. Four times in the Old Testament, David is going to rule in the millennium. Ooh. Under Christ, of course. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. And my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever. And his throne as the days of heaven. It's a long time. That's a long time. Okay, getting back to Colossians, we made it all the way to verse sixteen. Okay, we're just getting warmed up here. For by him, by who? Who's that him? Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus. For by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. See, he's just putting down the Gnostics. Not by addressing the Gnostics, just e- expressing who Christ really is. He's preexistent. He's the creator. For by him were all things created. All things. That's a bunch. Okay? All things. Including Satan. That's the Mormon error. They say that Satan was his brother. They have a whole thing in their traditions. No, 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 no. Uh, Kurt Koch wrote a book many years ago, Between Christ and Satan. It's on demonology. The book is pretty good. The title's terrible because it creates the impression that it's between Christ and Satan. That's a joke. Christ created Satan. He didn't have to tiptoe around that guy. He did in uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 at the temptation because that was his mission. Whatever cosmic powers there may be, they have nothing to offer any Christian. Because in Christ he has all things. There's nothing you lack in the universe if you have Christ. If you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter. If you do have Christ, there's nothing, nothing, anywhere. You need tremble or fear. There are demons that might try to bluff you, try to challenge your understanding of that, your apprehension of that. But in Christ you have... He's, He's defeated them all. Visible and invisible. Wow. There are things that are created that are invisible. That probably doesn't surprise us. Let's explore that a little bit. There are two kinds of things here. There are four dimensions that we experience, length, width and height, three spatial dimensions. And what's the fourth one? Time. Time. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> there are also six that we know exist. We can prove they exist experientially, but they're they're curled in less than the the wavelength of light so you can't see them manifest in the typical ways. But we know they're there by a number of techniques. The current perception of the particle physics is that we have, we live in 10 dimensions. And there's a whole thing that I'm going to spare you because I've got plenty of places to go. There is a view that the universe originally was committed in 10 dimensions and in Genesis chapter 3 it fractured and it it was split into four and ten, four and six, and the four are that we're, we're left with under the curse, the six are there to uh, that are rendered um, separated from us but that's a, that's a conjecture, but it's based on some perceptions but we're going to talk a little bit about the boundaries of our physical reality okay and uh Don't let the picture confuse you. I just thought it was a colorful picture. It happens to be a manifold in ten dimensions. And uh, it's just a tutorial insight here. So I'll spare you that. It's just there for color. Uh, It's a Lagrangian fractal, and I won't get into all that, but anyway. uh, (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about hyperdimensions. Oh, that's a fancy word for spaces of more than three dimensions, okay? You and I are familiar with three dimensions, right? The minute you talk about more than three, you're suddenly entering an area that we call hyperspaces. Okay? And uh, let me show you what the Bible has to say about that. In Ephesians chapter 3, you find this passage, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Nice phrase. Very laudatory rhetoric. Did you catch what He said? The breadth, the length, the depth, and the height? This is Paul talking. Was he a physicist? I don't think so. Did he just concatenate this by leading of the Holy Spirit? I suspect so. But let's examine this. These are four dimensions, okay, that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height. The word breath, platos in the Greek. That is re- that it, suggesting great extent can mean any of several things? Okay, length. Okay, that's length. mekos. That's pretty straightforward. And uh, depth. That is depth or height. Deep things of God. It could include bathos, if you will, and height, which is of height of place or of rank. Okay. And uh, one of these can be used for time. Incidentally, we've got breadth, length, depth, and height. And these are four dimensions. Now. The point I'm going to get at here a little bit, the fourth dimension that you and I experience, we call time. It's not uniform. We all tend to presume that an hour next week is like an hour last week. Not necessarily, okay? Time is a physical property. You have an atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado that's accurate to one microsecond per million years. You have a virtually identical clock like that at Greenwich, England. And it's also accurate to the same accuracy, and yet every year they're five microseconds apart, the two of them. Which one's right? They both are, because the one in Greenwich is 80 feet above sea level, the one in Boulder is 5,400 feet above sea level, and the difference in gravity makes time at a different speed. If I have an atomic clock here on the platform and I lift it one meter, it speeds up by one part and 10 to the 16th. Not enough to adjust your schedules. But it's predictable and measurable. So time varies. It's a, the key thought here, isn't the math, is that it's a physical property, okay? Time varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity, among other things. That's an important thing, it's a physical property. And you and I exist in more than three dimensions. And apparently we exist in ten. Now, we've just moved beyond Euclid. The kind of geometry we learned in school was Euclidean geometry. But in uh, June 10th, 1854, George Riemann gave what's regarded as one of the most important mathematical lectures in history where he developed a thing called metric tensors. It took some over 50 years for that mathematics to have a practical application. and Einstein used it to develop his theory of relativity, the four-dimensional space-time. A physicist doesn't speak of time and space separately. Planck's constant is a four-dimensional constant. Einstein went to his death frustrated. He was able, in, in grappling with the properties of space and time, he realized that it had an additional dimension. Not three, but four. And out of that, he bro- had a breakthrough called the theory of relativity. He went to his death frustrated because there there's still some things he could not resolve. If he had gone one level up more to f- five dimensions, it would have yielded. And in 1953, Calusa and Klein developed the more than four dimensional spaces, five, six, and seven, which reconcile light and supergravity. And then in 1963, Yang Mills built their fields that reconciled together electromagnetic and both nuclear forces. And we'll get into this a little bit in a little bit here. But the point is, the current thinking since about 1984 is that we have superstrings, one dimensional strings vibrating in ten dimensions and that somehow explains it all and that little model I use as a picture is just a colorful way to get into this whole subject.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.